Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the 10th episode of the Brit Podcast. We're getting into the thick of it with one leader's debate already in the books and two coming next week. Once we're through the long weekend, it will be a sprint to the finish line. So joining me today to chat about the race so far is Corey Hogan. You probably know Corey as the smart guy from the Strategist podcast, which is ably hosted by Zane Belgi and also Stephen Carter is involved with that. Corey is also former head of communications for the Alberta government under Notley and Kenny and is now a VP at the University of Calgary. Hey, Corey. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I, I do love the podcast. Um, so I, I'm really uh, I'm really chuffed to uh, speak with you. Um, you guys have been going for a long time, haven't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, on and off. Every now and then one of us takes a job that requires them to step away from the podcast for a bit, but uh, we like to get back together, you know, have a nice trio of Palliser Triangle elites, just giving our views on sausage making, government, political strategy. It's a blast. Um, so, you know, we're, I guess, uh, just past the halfway point of this campaign. And just so people know, we're recording this on Thursday, so it is taking place before uh, the French language uh, debate that's taking place on Thursday night. Um, but just in general, what is your feeling on how this campaign has been unfolding so far? Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to argue this is the campaign that uh, Justin Trudeau dreamed of when he was a young boy, you know, with his wishboard up saying this is what 2021 is going to look like. Um, we were seeing polls before this that were starting to flirt with the liberals in double digit leads. People were talking openly about the potential of a majority. That's obviously why we have this campaign to begin with, because there doesn't seem to be a lot of other reasons, but very quickly uh, things came crashing down to reality. And there's always a natural tightening when an election starts. That's just the nature of people, you know, the, the race by default, I suppose. But um, the conservative gains have been real and now sustained over a couple of weeks and the liberal decline very much the same. So uh, now we're in a race, right? Now this is an actual contest. And I, I'm not quite sure how all of these parties are going to adjust. And I'm not quite sure that any of these parties have adjusted fully yet, particularly the liberals with the drop of their platform yesterday, which didn't really seem to reflect uh, a campaign that was going to be a contest with O'Toole seemed to be more a referendum on don't you love all these awesome things we've done? Can't we continue to be awesome for you? Uh, you know, that their vibe, not mine, I think. So uh, exciting, exciting for guys like you and me. Who get, who get to talk about these things and look at them, probably pretty terrifying if you're in the liberal war room. Are you surprised by the fact that it they seem to be uh, among the least prepared parties uh, for this campaign and seemingly were the ones who knew the date you know, long before anybody else? It, it doesn't seem like this campaign is what they were expecting and they haven't been able to really adjust to get into the groove of what this campaign has become. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's one of these things that has everybody scratching their head. You picked this campaign. You chose this date. You could have worked on whatever you wanted for the platform and, and the things that you were going to put in the window. But starting from day one, where it was, um, I thought, a somewhat ham-fisted attempt by the prime minister to say, well, tell me why we shouldn't have an election, almost to attempt to flip this onus and say, this is such a big moment. We need a campaign right now. There was no follow-up. There was no next thing. Okay, if you say that this is going to be a consequential election and we're going to talk about big things, give me a big thing. And instead, what the liberals seem to have done is immediately gone on the offensive to the conservatives and attacked the conservatives as this, this kind of nefarious threat. But how, how well does that work? And I think the answer is not very at all, as we're seeing from the polls. How well does that work when you're the one who called the election? You know, The only reason the conservatives have a chance to govern is because you decided you wanted to go to the polls. And, and that's an inherent tension in the campaign that I think the liberals thought they could talk their way out of, but Canadians are less enthused, right? And I'm not saying this is destiny. I'm not saying the liberals are going to lose. I'm saying this is not the start they hoped for. What's your take on, on the fact that it, it just took about two weeks, uh, two and a half weeks, I guess, or at this point, for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives to more or less make the last year of polling pretty meaningless, right? We were going into this campaign expecting that uh, the Liberals had a big lead, that Aaron O'Toole's personal numbers were too low for him to survive. They were worse than Andrew Shears. And it's almost like none of that mattered, um, which you know is an awkward place to be for someone who talks a lot about polls outside of campaigns. But how were they able to overturn those numbers so dramatically? Well, I you just got to keep in mind, it wasn't real life. It was COVID. Uh, we were all focused on 
um, the recovery, how we were going to deal with this virus. We're obviously still dealing with it, but this wasn't a normal time. And Aaron O'Toole didn't get the things that a new opposition leader normally gets, including being in the House of Commons, three sword lengths apart or two sword lengths apart from the prime minister, fighting with him, arguing with him, uh, getting to put his his face forward. And one of the things that killed me, I mentioned this on uh, on my podcast, is the number of people who disapproved of Aaron O'Toole far exceeded the number who had an opinion of who Aaron O'Toole was. You could ask who's the opposition leader. They couldn't answer, but they decided they didn't like him. And that was sort of a halo, I think, from Andrew Shear's brand, the conservative brand writ large. But there was a lot that was bubbling under the surface that made you think maybe Canadians are just pretending to have an opinion about this guy. And maybe it'll be different when the election starts. And and you're seeing a fair bit of this. And I think one of the things that the Liberals fell into was this mistake of believing that those polls were reflective the way they would have been reflective in normal times. And I'm like, I talk about polls all the time. And I'm like you, it's a little awkward when you're looking at polls and, and they seem to have missed these things, but they're just one data point. And we always have to think about the context that they're in. And this was a, a very, very different context. Do you think that you could still make the argument uh, this early in the campaign, the fact that you know it's only really today or this week that parents are getting their kids uh, to school. Do the numbers that have been coming out of the last two weeks, are they also real numbers or is there the chance that maybe they are also a little bit imaginary? I mean, I, I don't know. It's a good question. My, my kids went back to school yesterday and um, Labor Day is often seen as that trigger where normal life begins after summer. I think it's unlikely that people have engaged in this campaign at the level they'll engage in the next couple of weeks. And so maybe as they go shopping around, actually reading party platforms, the sadists among us who do read those things, maybe their opinions will change. Maybe the uh, debates will be a calcifying moment and, and snap people into some sort of sense of, okay, this is real and I've got to think about the election. Maybe the first couple of weeks have been are you kidding me? It's a summer election. I'm just mad at you about that, but but Canadians will pivot off it. This is not the first time we've had elections at this moment. And I think I, I did a quick scan. I didn't do an in-depth scan, but polling in August is not unpredictive, I suppose. But as the old cliche goes, campaigns matter and things can still change. Um, and we're going to have to see where we are, but certainly it will be near impossible to discount polls after next week. At that point, there's just, there's too many too many things that are there. You can only say, oh, no, no, this week doesn't count. It's next week we define the leader. Oh, this week doesn't count. It's next week we release our platform. Oh, this week doesn't count. It's the following week that there's the debates. You're kind of out of things at a certain point. You've just got to accept the polls for what they are. On the uh, on the strategist earlier this week, uh, there was a discussion about polls and uh, also about aggregators who uh, we didn't come out very well in that. Uh, but just in, <laughs> just in general, um, do you think that the public does not consume polls very well? Oh, I don't think the public or the media, I'm obviously excluding folks such as yourself, are particularly poll literate. And one of the challenges, I, I think, is that polling forms narratives in ways that parties have trouble controlling. But that, I mean, ultimately, what I would say is parties view public polls largely as narrative generators. And uh, certainly aggregators have amped that up, right? Because now you can go to uh, a CBC aggregator or 338canada.com or any of the aggregators that are out there and say, well, on balance, this is where the campaign is. And, and then it becomes almost the story that everybody's reacting to. And it's always been true that uh, polls are narrative generators for campaigns, both for the public and also for their volunteers who start to get squeamish when, when they're seeing a result they don't like or is unexpected, I suppose. But more so today, just with not just the volume of the polls, but the, the analysis that's wrapped over it that almost allows them to, how can I put this? At least I think there was maybe people always think they're more adroit at these things than they are. But right. before, at least you could be like, well, I'm not a pollster. Now you have people who are experts in polls who layer on their analysis and say, here's the brass tacks. This is when you look at all of them. And, and that just amps up the problem for political parties. Because I've asked myself this question, um, you know, who is reading what I write or, or listening to podcasts like ours? Are they people who already are so engaged in politics that uh, it's more like listening to talk radio uh, about your sports team, um, you know, going way into the weeds that is not going to inform your voting decision or how many people do just, you know, click on the, uh, the link to go see where the polls are. And, and that helps them decide how an election 
is unfolding and how they're going to vote in case they want to vote strategically or something. I, I don't know what the answer is, uh, you know, what share of the audience of people who consume stuff about polls are actually driven by the results and how many are, it, it's sort of like infotainment um, in a way, uh, because certainly when I consume polls, it, it has nothing to do with how I'm viewing, um, you know, the political choice that, uh, that people are making. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners would be sports junkies if they were more coordinated. But <laughs> we have a, a situation here where people get addicted to the stories and the narratives and and so go and look for things to feed those narratives. And just like sports junkies, a lot of them have their team already. They know exactly what they want. They're going to look through it and parse it and say, yeah, these stats were bad, but you've got to consider this is his rookie season. This is whatever you want, right? Um, but there are also people who are sports fans in a more general sense and are just really interested in politics and want to see where the race is. And maybe, maybe you're even undecided. I, I struggle with this a lot myself. I wonder who's the audience, who, who's listening to these things. But by and large, even if it were simply an audience of people who already have firmly set opinions, it does have a way of trickling out, doesn't it? Right. The, the, the idea that there's these opinion leaders and then what they're saying becomes a conversation within uh, a group that's really tuned in and that becomes the conversation with a bit of lag in, in the general public. And I think that's absolutely true. You can, you can see that happening in a lot of cases uh, with a certain amount of lag. Uh, but it's, it's changed how parties have reacted to all of this, all of this data that's out here all of the time. And it, this narrative generation problem that polls create, right, it's either something to manage or leverage, depending on if it's a good poll or a bad poll, it's just, it's more acute for the liberals and the new Democrats. And I think particularly the new Democrats, because there's so many more people willing to swap between the two, right? Liberal second choice, new Democrat, new Democrat second choice, liberals. And that collapse story that the liberals are always trying to tell at the end of an election, you know, heard the lefty voters into stopping the conservatives. And, and so parties have canned responses to these things, but uh, it, it's an arms race and you're always trying to update. And it used to be, you could say that's one poll, but with the introduction of aggregators, that's a lot harder to say if you're a, if you're a party, right? Because you're looking at all the polls and uh, it used to be, then you say, that's not what the internals say, but uh, there's just so much data out there. It, it complicates things for parties significantly. So does that mean that internally political campaigns, they look at the polls as just sort of another news story that they have to handle? Is it often the case in your experience or, you know, knowing anecdotally from other campaigns that the public polls have a different narrative than what the parties understand is ha actually happening? Yeah, I, for sure. I, I guess I can answer it pretty simply and say it is about narrative generation, right? Internals are way more useful for things like resource allocation, where you're going to send the leader because they're targeting into areas where they, they've already determined they're likely to be competitive, or maybe they should keep an eye on it and see if they're going to be competitive. You know, it's, it's the writings they want to be in, plus the writings that they'll need to be in if the polls go south and the writings they'll want to be in if the polls go north. But um, the, uh, the, the story that is generated by polling is really something that war rooms think about and contemplate. And, and you start to get squeamish people calling and saying, well, I just saw this poll. And this poll says we're all of a sudden down seven points in, um, in Alberta relative to the last poll. And, you know, obviously you've probably got a smaller sample size on a daily tracker in Alberta. And is a seven point swing something to you know, get worried about? I, I don't know. I doubt it. Right. But the other thing is with so many polls out there and speaking about that basic poll illiteracy, People also have trouble differentiating between pollsters, right? So if the last poll they heard was Abacus and it had the Liberals at 33, and the next poll they hear is Main Street and it's got the Liberals at 31, they might say, oh my God, the Liberals are declining. That would actually be an increase on Main Street though, right? So uh, it's a, it's a, such a complicated, messy picture and, and the parties are really actively trying to manage it at any given time, but they're also trying to leverage it when it's to their advantage, when they want to tell stories about momentum. And, um, and really, if you ask me, the story of the 2015 campaign was the, uh, the Justin Trudeau virtuous cycle. Him, uh, you know, th there was basically a three-way tie for a month in that campaign. And then after the French language debate, the Liberals got a bit of daylight with the NDP. And that just fed a runaway effect, uh, which made him prime minister with a majority government. Do you think that uh, campaigns would be better off if there weren't any polls? How would they change things if they weren't there to be that narrative generator? And, you know, if, if you take them at, you know, more face value, I suppose, uh, a little bit of a check on what the parties are saying and acting, uh, you know, for example, 
the Green Party not doing very well right now. If they were talking as if they were on track to uh, you know get official party status, you could verify that and say that's not going to happen. You know, would it be a, a scattershot of different narratives coming out from different parties? Would it be better or would it be worse? I think it would be a lot more local. There are things besides polls that we can look at in our own community. I'm, I'm sure I can look around and I can say, oh, you know, the, the liberals have a lot of signs up. The conservatives have a lot of signs up. The PPC has basically no signs up. The Green Party has basically no signs up. The NDP has basically no signs up. I think locally voters do this fairly well. They can kind of intuit who's in the race and who's not in the race, and they'll still make the same strategic decisions. They'll just, they, they won't have that national narrative crashing down on them that makes them second guess themselves and doubt and wonder. Um, but there, there would still be a lot of the same challenges. It would just be in a bit, not an information vacuum, but our inputs would be significantly different. Are you seeing the volunteers on the door in the volume that you would? Are there those big sine waves, all of, all of that matter? And, um, and you'd be looking to the national leaders for performance. And you would also kind of count, I think, on the media to determine what's a serious campaign and what's not based on the volume of coverage they got, even if the media wasn't doing it intentionally. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a really interesting question. Uh, but polls certainly have an anchoring effect on the conversation about who's in the game and who's not in the game. That's totally undeniable. Why don't we move on to uh, what's happening in Alberta? Um, because you're out there. And uh, at the beginning of the campaign, it did look like Alberta was suddenly really up for grabs. Not not the entire province, obviously, but <laughs> that maybe, you know, maybe a half a dozen seats, maybe even more than that uh, could be in play. That Now, the Conservatives seem to have gotten their base back. They're, in most polls, they're... 50 to 60 percent, still down from the last time, but the polls underestimated the Conservatives in Alberta in 2019, so they could be doing that again. Is your sense that the kind of field of play has been reduced a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I think so. Although it's funny, you talk about up for grabs, half a dozen, I mean, six out of 34 is not a competitive province, but in Alberta, that would be a shockingly competitive result, right? But um, We've gotten to this point where it really now looks like maybe there's just a couple of seats in each in each uh, of the major cities in, in Calgary and Edmonton. And part of this is that O'Toole has found his footing a bit. Uh, one of the things that I think needs to be noted is, is that Aaron O'Toole dropped in the polls more probably in Alberta than anywhere else in the country. And part of that was because Aaron O'Toole was making a conscious play for the center, which in a funny way, sort of antagonized some of the more true blue hardcore conservatives in Alberta, but there's no realistic place for them to go. And, and certainly I don't think that the, the PPC or the Maverick party is going to end up being a spoiler in basically any situation because they're not strong in the same areas where the liberals and new Democrats are strong. They're, they're strong in, in some of these rural pockets, but the, the liberals and new Democrats, it's inner city, right? It's the inner city votes where you're, where you're going to see some swing. So I have a pretty strong sense that uh, Alberta will wake up conservative. Uh, it will be interesting to see if they, they hold their near sweep. There's only currently one non-conservative seat in the province. That's in Edmonton Strathcona uh, for the NDP. But um, there is so much going on beneath the surface in Alberta. There's so many provincial political narratives that you are starting to see almost cracks in this hegemony that used to exist in Alberta. So I wouldn't say, you know, mark your clocks, make sure you check what Alberta is doing on election night. But two elections from now, you might have a very different story. Well, back in 2015, you know, the Liberals won four seats. The New Democrats won a single seat. Um, and there was the a little bit of a narrative that this is a sign of Alberta changing, that it's becoming more uh, progressive in its urban centers, looking a little bit more like parts of, of central Canada. And then in 2019, it was, you know, the reversion back to what it was before, just one NDP seat and the, uh, you know, the Conservatives running up pretty crazy numbers. So which one was the true truth there? You know, was which one was the exception? Was the return back to a Conservative dominance in 2019 uh, exceptional based on the you know, the fact that it was Justin Trudeau, pipelines, those kinds of issues, or was the move to becoming more progressive that we saw in 2015, was that where Alberta is heading? Alberta's demographics have changed a lot in the past couple of decades here. And I guess what I would say is the answer is sort of both, and I know that's unsatisfying, but I would say 2015, provincially for sure, um, federally, maybe 
but they were just dramatic manifestations of what were long-term trends in the province where you were seeing more progressive votes. And it, and it wasn't entirely new. Uh, the, the PC party that governed Alberta for a long time, Ralph Klein was a pretty right-wing guy. Ed Stelmack, the person who followed him, not, not so much, right? A much more red Tory type. And Alison Redford, who followed him, even more so. Even Jim Prentice, who, who had the job before he lost it, was more of the red Tory ilk. And so even though you didn't see necessarily the labels changing at the top line, if you were looking back over the past couple of decades, you were seeing the political conversation in Alberta had evolved and become more small p progressive, right? And certainly you also saw that with the mayors that we've been electing, Mayor Nenshi in Calgary, Mayor Iveson in Edmonton. So uh, it's all happening. Like uh, Alberta is almost, you know, 60% larger than it was in the 90s in terms of population. Most of those people don't remember the Ralph Klein era, nor do they have any interest in hearing about it. And uh, the demographics are dramatic. A lot of people don't realize Calgary is the third most diverse city in the, in the country. It goes Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary. And, uh, and that's with uh, Indigenous and visible minority population combined of, at the last census of 41%. We're about to get some new numbers here. So, you know, demographics are destiny. We are seeing this shift occurring. The, the political party that gets supported does tend to be a bit of a lagging indicator. 2015 was quite shocking, I think, especially on the provincial side for a lot of observers, but it was based on something real, I suppose, is what I want to underline here. And, uh, and we are seeing here in Alberta right now at, at the provincial level, it has been a long, long time since the Conservatives were leading the NDP in a poll. I think you have to go back to October of last year to see one where the Conservatives were in the lead. That tells me this is not that hegemonist blue uh, province that it was at one point. Um, so as we're recording this right now, um, uh, the leaders might be doing some debate prep uh, ahead of tonight. And I mentioned this on Twitter and I saw you respond. So I want to <laughs> pick your brain on it just a bit. We'll finish on this, but um, debate rehearsals, debate preparation. Uh, what, what's that like? Oh, it's a lot of fun. I, I replied or I quote tweeted you or whatever it was saying is like my favorite thing when I was a political organizer, because um, you actually get, first of all, who doesn't love trying to put their boss in their place, right? Like you get to go up there and argue with them. But uh, what it's like, I, so first of all, binders get created, binders and binders. It all starts with binders as so many things in government and politics do, where you try to pin down the positions, the style, the tone, how they've acted in previous situations. And you really try to get a lay of the land. And if you're doing it well, you wanna make sure that you are, you're not doing the broad, lazy caricature version of the other party leader or the other party. You're, you're trying to put their best framing forward. So if you're the liberals and you're doing debate prep, you're not saying, for example, Aaron O'Toole is going to go out there and, and talk about how much he supports uh, protesters who are showing up at Aaron or at Justin Trudeau's um, uh, you know, events. That's just not going to happen. Um, but you really want to get into the sense of who these people are as a person. You want to avoid doing things like silly voices and all of that. Just you know, stick to the stick to the facts, so to speak. Um, and then you want to pick people who you think could largely match the style of the people that are being debated with, but also have a good understanding of said binders as they're created. And, uh, and there's a couple of ways you do it. One is you go all the way through, right? And you say, okay, we're just going to do a mock debate from start to finish because you want to do that stress test where there's not the pauses, but. Uh, you, you'll also want to have moments where you stop and you say, no, actually that, that wasn't a good answer to that question leader and, uh, and recommend different answers and different phrases. And people will also be working on the canned phrases, the things that they want to drop when the issues they know that are going to come up, come up. I, I find those kind of the, the lamest and most stilted, but, uh, I, I think often can create some of the biggest moments too. Yeah. Can you be over rehearsed? Oh, for sure. And I think uh, I would say, and I'm going to skip the 19 election again, go back to 15. Tom Mulcair in 2015 was over-rehearsed, right? Somebody obviously told him, you got to smile more, you got to smile more. And he ultimately looked like he was on quaaludes or something. He was just, <laughs> he had this grin on his face. And even when he was like doing this attack on people, his speech was so laconic and, and it's difficult. I mean, I, anybody who's done any kind of media training will know that you go through a bit of a valley where the minute you start watching the tape of yourself, you get worse because you start trying to fix all these things about yourself. And then the next time you see it, you're just a mess. And maybe you weren't that bad at the start. 
party leaders aren't very different. And as they're trying to juggle all of these balls in their mind as to how they're supposed to act, uh, they can really, they, they can come crashing down and then you get performances that are suboptimal to put it modestly. So you can absolutely over rehearse, but I would say more to the point, you can, you can try to overcorrect. Party leaders are wise to try to solve one or two problems they may have with delivery. Maybe they come off scowly. Maybe their answers are too flip. Don't try to change your entire personality in debate prep because that will fail. How, how nervous do leaders get before these debates? Are they, do they sleep at night? Are they, uh, you know, fidgeting all day? Uh, what's that, what's that like? How much do they, is it just another political event? That's not no. that much different. Yeah, it's very different. Um, I, I can tell you campaign managers get nervous. Yeah. I think I have worn out carpets on debate night watching the results. Um, leaders get nervous too, and, and they worry about it. And you can see them start to get snappy before debates because, there are so few moments in a modern campaign where you can say basically everybody's watching or the stakes are that high and it can create an awful lot of anxiety in them. Um, I don't know if they're sleeping or not. I'll confess any leader I've worked with hasn't, hasn't confided in me whether they were sleeping or not the night before, but you can tell, you can tell how high strung they are. And what I usually recommend to leaders is find some time on debate day early enough that it doesn't become disruptive. Go for a run, uh, you know, do something physical, keep your mind off it. Don't be in your head for that time, because to be in that state of like sheer adrenaline all day is not helpful either. So you've got, you've got to find a way to manage that. And we're all human. You know, it's like that old Mark Twain quote, you know, there's two types of people in the world, two types of speakers, I guess, uh, those who get nervous and those who are liars, you can't help, but feel those nerves when you're a leader, uh, going onto that stage. And you can see it too, uh, especially if you're sort of trained to look for it. You can almost feel the vibration in their voice in their first couple of answers before they settle into the debate format and an instinct kicks in to a certain extent. I, I, just listening to you, I'm starting to feel nervous to watch the debates. I always get nervous <laughs> watching the debates because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want anybody to really embarrass them themselves. I often feel that way. If I'm watching a sitcom and someone's in an embarrassing position, I get un uncomfortable. So a debate is even worse. Uh, yeah. So I can't imagine what it's like to watch it when it's one of your when it is your boss and maybe your, you know, career prospects that are on the stage there. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, it is tough. And of course you're looking at them and you're judging them based on how well they delivered the lines that you rehearsed or not. And you're, you're trying to mentally correct for all of your own biases and trying to figure out how it's going on. And it's, it's, you need, there's elation when the debate is done. If, if you don't fall on your face, even if you've only had an okay debate, because well, the upside could be good, could be significant. It's the downside you really dread as a leader. Everybody knows that the 1984 debate between Mulroney and Turner, where Mulroney stuck it to Turner uh, on patronage appointments saying, you had an option, sir. You could have said no. And Turner just looked there dumb. And, and that scene is just such a moment in the debate. I think anybody who's had to do a debate like that thinks, well, what would I have said in those moments? How would I have managed those moments? How do I get out of those dark alleys, keep myself from being bludgeoned to death? Uh, leaders worry a lot about having a moment like that. There's far fewer moments that you can point to where you can say they won the debate at that moment. Lots of times you can point to it and say they lost. Yeah. Everybody's going to be looking for that uh, math is hard moment, I think, in yeah, uh, yeah. debates. Well, Corey, really appreciate you taking the time uh, today. And, uh, you know, I'll be listening to you guys on The Strategist uh, every week. And uh, thanks so much. Well, likewise. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get to where the polls are at this midpoint of the campaign. It really is starting to look like a bit of a dogfight between the conservatives and the liberals that the two parties have been stabilizing in the polls. We saw that the conservatives were raising in voting intentions over the first couple of weeks of the campaign. And in the last week or so, we've seen that those daily tracking polls from Nanos, Main Street and Ecos have more or less shown that the rise of the conservatives has stopped. It hasn't shown that they are falling, but it does suggest that their momentum has tailored off the liberals are no longer sliding. Now, when you combine that with the online polls that we saw coming out over the last couple of days, those have also been showing a very close race between the liberals and the conservatives. Some of them have put the conservatives ahead. Some of them have put the liberals ahead. This suggests to me that we are more or less in a tie between the conservatives and the liberals, and it could stay like this for a little while. 
And we saw that in the 2019 campaign, really for the entire campaign, the Conservatives and the Liberals were neck and neck in the polls. Their support did drop as a campaign wore on, as the Bloc Québécois and the New Democrats gained in support. But the Conservatives and Liberals, they both had relatively similar drops. So it was a neck-and-neck race throughout. We could be in the same situation. Uh, I've heard it a couple times. But it's almost like the pandemic is over. And the impact of the pandemic on voting intentions that boosted the Liberals, boosted Justin Trudeau, has now been erased. And we're back to pre-pandemic polling pre-pandemic politics. Before the pandemic, the Conservatives and the Liberals were neck and neck in the polls, and some of the polls are showing the uh, Conservatives were ahead. We seem to be heading back to that place. The only big difference would be that the New Democrats are quite a bit stronger than they were in 2019. It is an open question how much of that vote will remain with the New Democrats, whether we'll see, like in the last campaign, those progressive voters will vote strategically and flood back to the Liberals. Uh, And maybe the fact that the NDP has so much support among younger voters might have an impact on turnout because while uh, younger voters did come out in pretty big numbers the last two elections, they still come out in fewer numbers than uh, older voters who in this campaign are supporting the Conservatives and the Liberals. Regionally, I think what's really fascinating about where the numbers are, in Ontario, things seem to have stopped. There's no movement in the polls anymore, and it stopped at just the perfect point for the Liberals because... Uh, most polls are still showing them ahead, uh, even if it's just by a little bit. They're not falling behind the Conservatives in Ontario. Uh, maybe a week ago, we were often seeing in those daily tracking polls sizable leads for the Conservatives in Ontario, but we're not seeing that anymore. The polls that do have the Conservatives ahead in Ontario usually only have them ahead by a couple of points. Um, so that, I think, is pretty key because if the Liberals can hold a lead in Ontario, they probably can win more seats than the Conservatives nationwide, as long as they also hold in Quebec. Uh, We have been seeing that their support has been sliding a little bit in Quebec, along with the Bloc Québécois. The Bloc Québécois is not catching up on the Liberals. What's happening instead is that the Conservatives are rising. They're now usually north of 20%, and the New Democrats are up a couple points. Whether it's enough to actually have an impact on the seat count, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, I think that is an interesting dynamic. And as I'm recording this, the TVA debate hasn't happened yet, so we'll see what impact that will have on voting intentions. We have seen in the past that the French language debates have been really impactful. I wrote about this on uh, Thursday. Looking at the shift in the polls in the last couple of campaigns, in 2011, uh, the NDP's rise in Quebec wasn't caused by the debate, but it was accelerated by the debate. And in the week after the 2011 uh, French language debate, the NDP was up six points. They took that from the Liberals, Conservatives, and the Bloc Québécois, and they would continue to rise in the polls in Quebec uh, after that debate. In 2015, the New Democrats went into it with the lead in the polls, but the two debates that took place in French, there was a TVA debate, there was a consortium debate, uh, it cost the New Democrats about 10 points in the polls. And the Bloc Québécois picked up a bit, they got a little bit off the mat, the Liberals picked up and would eventually win the popular vote in Quebec and, and 40 seats. In 2019, uh, again, the uh, Liberals were ahead in the polls going into the debate. They were way ahead of everybody else, the Bloc, the Conservatives. They're both at about 20% support. Uh, and the performance of Yves-François Blanchet really accelerated the uh, support for the Bloc Québécois. And they were able to rise up into a neck-and-neck race with the Liberals in Quebec and reestablish themselves. Uh, we kind of forget it now, but going into the 2019 campaign, the Bloc wasn't doing very well. They were polling in the 15 to 20 percent range. They were likely to pick up a couple seats. Uh, and the question was whether they'd reach official party status, which is 12 seats. Instead, they more or less reestablished themselves as an important factor in federal politics in Quebec. But that could be in some danger now. They are polling in the mid-20s, uh, and that could cost them some seats. And if the debates don't go well for Francois Blanchet, maybe the bloc drops even further and, you know, they could be down into the 20s, maybe in the teens in terms of seats if things go badly for them. So there is a lot running, riding on how well things go for Blanchet in Quebec. And as a result, a lot is riding on what happens for the liberals and the conservatives. The conservatives are doing well in Quebec. Now, are they going to make a big breakthrough in seats? I don't think so. It's hard to see where they can make gains beyond Beyond the two or three extra seats that the, the party has some chances in, the uh, the two Beaupas seats in the Quebec City area, for example, would be ones that they could maybe pick off, a seat like Jean-Pierre in the, the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean. 
they just don't have much more ceiling beyond that. The conservatives would need to be in the high 20s in the polls before they can start thinking about breaking out of that core area of support where they usually have. But yeah, there's some interesting dynamics going on in Quebec. The New Democrats, um, are they for real? Can they actually get some support that delivers them some seats? They did not meet their polling nationally, but also in Quebec in the last election. And, you know, the same kind of thing could happen this time. If that does, it will be tough for the New Democrats to win anything beyond uh, Alexandre Boulouris' seat on the island of Montreal. There is a, one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, as we're kind of rounding up where the polls are and the, the news of the week. I want to talk about the candidates. So we, we have the final numbers from Elections Canada in terms of how many candidates are running for each of the parties. There's not a lot of surprises here. The Liberals and the New Democrats both have 338 candidates. The Conservatives have 337 because they dropped that candidate out in Dartmouth. Uh, the Bloc Québécois has 78, so they're running a full slate in Quebec. The People's Party has uh, 312 candidates, so they're meeting their 315 they had in the last campaign. The big difference here, though, is that the Greens. The Greens are running 252 candidates out of 338. They're running a 75% slate. Now, that is really inexcusable for a national party. Um, the Greens had run a full slate in 2019. They were only a handful of candidates short in 2015 and 2011 and 2008. They had full slates in 2006, 2004. So really for the last almost 20 years, the Greens have been running full slates of candidates. They were one of four parties who did that. Uh, five, if you include the Bloc um, and a full slate in Quebec. 252 candidates. That's not very good, and there's some areas of the country that will not have a green candidate. Newfoundland and Labrador, eastern Quebec, uh, whole swaths of southern Quebec, parts of the GTA, uh, places in Edmonton. If you wanted to vote for the Green Party, sorry, not an option. It's really, really a huge failure for the Green Party, and I understand that they've been having a lot of difficulties over the last year or so. And, you know, it's, you can't necessarily blame Annemi Paul for, for, for this failure, considering that the party apparatus was not being very helpful. Uh, you can blame the uh, difficulty of getting signatures in an era of COVID, but the other parties were able to do it. And whether or not, you know, it's the Green Party HQ or it's Annemi Paul who has to carry this blame... It is just a failure. The last time that the Greens didn't run nearly a full slate was back in 2000. So one of the other things to consider with this is that with only a 75% slate, the showing that the Greens are putting up in the polls is almost certainly going to be a high. And they're not polling very highly. They're right now just over 3%. And if they're going to lose a quarter of that, then, you know, it seems like quite likely the Greens will end up with under 3% support unless Annemi Paul can turn things around at the debates. It, it really is just a the culmination of what has been just an awful few months for the Green Party. And uh, I, I think they have some, some serious questions that they're going to have to ask themselves once this campaign is over. Okay, for the questions this week, I got three, and I think at least two of them are from people I've answered questions before. Uh, Conrad Gorskowski, what is the importance for pollsters to ask, who do you think will win? Polls already show how voters are thinking. Is there merit to asking this as well? I think there is, not in a predictive way, but in a way of understanding how voters are approaching the election. Because who Canadians think is going to win the election does play a big role in how they vote. Think of strategic voters. If you care more about keeping one party out than you do about putting a party in, where a party stands in the polls, your perception of their chances of winning is going to have a big impact. There was uh, that question that was asked in a couple polls this week. Abacus Data, for example, uh, found that 43% of Canadians thought the Liberals were going to win, 23% thought the Conservatives were going to win, and then 9% thought the NDP was going to win. I find that interesting because... It raises the question of how people are perceiving the question. Do the 9% of people who think the NDP are going to win is it because they're just very optimistic about the party's chances and they think that Jagmeet Singh will have a big breakthrough and, and will have an upset victory? Do they not really understand where the political reality is right now in terms of the polls and the NDP's chances? Or do they think about it in terms of um, their local candidate? 
I don't know. And uh, I, I think it's still fascinating, though, that in a poll that had the Liberals only ahead by a couple of points, they're 20 points ahead in terms of who Canadians think is going to win. Leger asked the same thing and had a, a little bit of a closer outcome, but 39% think the, uh, the Liberals would win, 28% think the Conservatives would win, 7% the NDP. So it, it does suggest that people are following the discussion, the conversation. They know that the Liberals are favored to win. It's interesting that in polls that are more or less showing the two parties neck and neck, so many more people think that the Liberals will end up winning. And they could be very, very wrong. We saw that in the 2015 Alberta election, which I always think about. The polls at the end of that campaign had the New Democrats, the Alberta NDP, up by about 20 points or more over the PCs and the Wild Rose Party. By any objective measure, the New Democrats were going to win. There was no way that a party that was that far ahead was going to lose on election day. But this was Alberta. And in 2012, the polls had given the Wildrose Party a lead of about 10 points in the last week of the campaign over the PCs, and the PCs ended up winning. So there was a lot of doubt about what the polls were showing. And I remember commentary at the end of that campaign said that, you know, at worst, the PCs would emerge with a minority government. And voters digested that. Voters thought the PCs were going to win. The same people who were telling pollsters, the same people who were saying they were voting NDP, told pollsters they thought they weren't going to win. That would have probably had a huge impact on their willingness to vote for the NDP. A lot of those voters might have thought that, well, the PCs have won every election for the last four decades, so they're going to win the next one, so I can vote NDP. So I think that's what's interesting here. If a lot of Canadians think the Liberals are going to win, does that change how they're thinking about voting? Will a lot of those NDP and Green voters who might not want to see the Conservatives in power think that they can vote for the NDP or the Greens because the Liberals are probably going to win anyway. Will this change? As the Conservatives are ahead in more and more polls, will that perception change them? Will that change people's voting intentions? So I do think there's lots of value in it. I don't think there's predictive value in it, but I think that there's value in it in terms of trying to understand where the mind is at for voters in an election campaign. Uh, the next question was from uh, Kyle Visvanathan. So with PPC polls slightly rising, is this splitting votes and impacting the Conservatives winning certain ridings? Are the Tories taking any active effort to campaign against the PPC like they did in 2019? Now, the People's Party is doing better in the polls. They're uh, usually at around the 4% mark. Some of the IVR polls have them quite a bit higher. The online polls usually have them a bit lower. Uh, but overall, they're at about 4%. Are the PPC impacting the Conservatives? I'm not sure because the Conservatives are doing pretty well in the polls, and the PPC is also doing pretty well. It's hard for me to think of that. Um, the Conservatives are actually at 37% if the PPC wasn't around. I think that a lot of those voters that support the PPC might have in the past voted for the Conservatives, but I'm not sure if they're there right now. I'm not sure if they would vote for the party if the PPC wasn't an option. They might vote for the Christian Heritage Party. They might vote for an independent. I think that what the PPC has done has been to bring into the fold a lot of people who might have been non-voters, who didn't think that uh, the options they had were good ones. So I'm not sure that if the PPC disappeared, that all of those voters would go to the Conservatives. Now, are the Conservatives taking any active effort to campaign against the PPC? I'm not really seeing any. And in the way that the Conservatives are positioning th themselves very much in the center, it looks like they're not really worried about their right flank which is a bit surprising. But O'Toole is very much running a centrist campaign. You know, it was mentioned on uh, the Hurley Burley uh, podcast, The Curse of Politics, um, that O'Toole is running a PC campaign. If he's running a PC campaign, they're not really worried about the PPC. Finally, uh, Jim uh, Wiedrich asked, and I just wanted to answer this because I thought it was fun. He asked, favorite debate time activity? Write notes furiously, popcorn, drinking bingo cards. Seriously, do you just watch or how do you process the theater? You know, I do have a way of watching debates. Now, I'm not a note taker just in general. I've shown up at important meetings without a notepad and realized that I was probably making a mistake. One thing I do avoid is social media. I like to watch a debate and come to my own conclusions about what I'm watching before I look at what the consensus view was. Because often my perception of the debate ends up being colored by what other people are thinking. So I like to watch it without any other input to come to my own conclusions and then see what other people are thinking about it. I find that's a more natural way to understand the debate and also how most people would be consuming the debate. The average voter who is watching the debate in a way to help them decide how to vote is probably not on Twitter at the same time.
And of course, Twitter is is largely a theater of uh, journalists and uh, partisans, so uh, it's not uh, necessarily representative. But um, that's usually what I do. I stay off of uh, social media and um, hopefully have a, a glass of wine in hand. As part of the Every Election Project during this campaign, I've been doing a refresher course on the most recent elections. So that brings us to uh, the election of 2011, May 2nd, 2011. Uh, Really a historic campaign because it was the only one in which the New Democrats formed the official opposition. It was the worst result for the Liberals. It was really an exceptional campaign. And I think that is what is most key to it for me, is that it is often used as an example of what can happen when I think it is an example of what the exception to the rule can be. Now, going into this campaign, Stephen Harper and the Conservatives were in a minority government. They had been in a minority government since 2006, uh, when they first came to power. The Liberals were the official opposition. They were under Michael Ignatieff, who had taken over from Stéphane Zion uh, in late 2008 in an unofficial capacity and did so officially in 2009, in May of that year. The New Democrats were under the uh, leadership of Jack Layton. This would, of course, be his last campaign. He would sadly pass away later on in 2011. But this was his fourth election as leader of the NDP. The Bloc Québécois was still under uh, the leadership of uh, Gilles Duceppe. The Greens were under the leadership of Elizabeth May and um, was without a seat in the House of Commons going into the campaign. Over the course of the election, the Conservatives did lead in the polls, and the Liberals weren't too far back for the first couple weeks of that campaign. Things really shifted, though, after Jack Layton went on Tout le monde en parle, a a very popular uh, show on Radio-Canada. He had strong debate performances, and the New Democrats started being propelled forward in the polls in Quebec in a way that was really quite shocking and surprising. And I remember seeing those first polls and not really believing that this was happening. It just seemed unlikely. But as the NDP's support continued to increase in Quebec, the wheels of the Liberal campaign just were falling off. And as the NDP rose in the polls, you saw more strategic voters move over to the NDP in the rest of the country. But the breakthrough was really in Quebec. The NDP's performance in the rest of Canada was strong, but was not much better than its historical best performances in the rest of Canada. It's really Quebec that really uh, boosted them forward. By the end of the campaign, the NDP was running second in the polls, and the Conservatives were knocking on the door of a majority government, but they weren't quite there, at least not in the polls. The results, however, gave Stephen Harper the majority government he was asking for. When the results were finally tabulated, the Conservatives had won just under 40% of the vote. This was only a gain of about two points from the previous election. But it was enough to award them an extra 23 seats, boosting them to 166 and the majority government that Stephen Harper had long been looking for. The New Democrats, they really catapulted into the in in the popular vote up to 31 percent. That was up over 12 points from the previous election. And they jumped from 37 seats in 2008 to 103, by far the best performance the New Democrats have ever had. The Liberals had the worst performance they've ever had. They dropped about seven points to under 19% of the vote, and they won just 34 seats. That was down from 77 in the previous election. They were the third party in the House of Commons, the first time that had ever happened. The Bloc Québécois uh, dropped to 6% of the vote nationally and just four seats. They went from 49 to four. It was really an awful result for the Bloc Québécois. And Though their polling numbers were getting worse as the campaign wore on, very few people, except the bloc itself, knew that they were going to be reduced to so few seats as that. The Greens, though, got their breakthrough. Elizabeth May was able to win her riding of Sandwich Gulf Islands. The party took just under 4% of the vote, which was a drop of nearly three points from the previous election, but they finally got their seat. The Conservatives had strong results throughout the country. They won the most votes in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Yukon, and Nunavut. The New Democrats finished first, of course, in Quebec. That was the biggest shift that we saw in this campaign. They won 43% of the vote, winning 59 seats. That was more than the Bloc ever won. The Bloc never won as many as 59 seats, but the New Democrats were able to do it. They also finished second uh, throughout Western Canada. They just edged out the Liberals in Ontario and in Uh, New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia, and uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, they finished second to the Liberals. That was the only place where the Liberals finished first. The Liberals were reduced to just anemic results uh, 
under 15% of the vote uh, throughout much of Western Canada. And in Quebec, they were down to just 14%. They won seven seats. It was just a disaster for the Liberals across the board. Bloc Québécois was reduced to 23% of the vote in Quebec in four seats. And the Greens, they won their seat in BC. They took just about 8% of the vote in that province. Everywhere else, uh, with the exception of Yukon, they were in low single digit. This was the Harper majority. This was gains in British Columbia. This was gains, especially in the GTA and Toronto area in Ontario. Uh, They lost seats in Quebec. They only won five. They didn't need those five seats to get a majority government. In New Brunswick, they made some gains. And in Nova Scotia, this was really the path that the Conservatives were laying out for their majority government. And they were helped by the fact that the vote was split between the Liberals and the New Democrats in a way that was very advantageous for them. In some parts of, especially Ontario, The split between the NDP and the Liberals was an unusual one and allowed the Conservatives to win seats that they might not have won otherwise. So when we're thinking about what produced a Conservative majority government, you have to take into account the role of the vote distribution of the NDP and the Liberals. It's the kind of thing that is not necessarily going to be replicated every time the Conservatives are knocking on the door of a majority government. But this was a result that really shook up the political landscape. The Conservatives would run the country as a majority government for the next four years, but this was pretty much their high point. Uh, With the exception of some post-election polls, the Conservatives never really matched uh, their support from this campaign in post-election polling. The New Democrats, actually, for some time, were leading in the polls after the 2011 election, but the death of Jack Layton meant that they needed to find a new leader. That leader was Tom Mulcair, The Liberals, of course, Michael Ignatieff didn't even win his own seat, so he was out as leader, and eventually Justin Trudeau would replace him in 2013, and of course, later on, become the Prime Minister. Gilles Duceppe also didn't win his seat, so he was out as leader, and uh, the Bloc Québécois was a little bit in the wilderness for the next few years. They had another leader, Daniel Payet, who had to eventually resign, and he was replaced with Mario Beaulieu, who would subsequently step down voluntarily to give the job back to Gilles Duceppe. We'll talk about that 2015 election next week. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. You know, it is going to be a big week with those debates coming up, so there'll be plenty to watch. Uh, I'll have uh, coverage of it on the site. I'll have a bonus podcast episode coming out hopefully Monday morning. If you have subscribed to the website, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And if you haven't, you can go to therit.ca and subscribe to get access to all the content. All right, so it's a big week, and it's a long weekend. Have a good one, and thanks for listening.